Captain's log, stardate 5234.28.7. We're in orbit around the planet Babel, a diplomatic site famous for the Corridan Treaty of nearly a century ago. Chosen for its relevance to the original series of Star Trek, we calmly circle the planet, waiting for something to go wrong. Captain, there seems to be something wrong with the mundane operation of the Enterprise. Some kind of energy flux in the redundant nonsense capacitor. Red alert. Shields up. Shields at 20%. Compensate with auxiliary power. Compensating? Captain, I could rig primary power via the auxiliary power circuits in order to bypass all this boring stuff. Do it. Commander Data, please assist. Full impulse. Delay that order. Will, why don't you go lie down? Power restored, sir. We can proceed with the episode. Confirmed, sir. And so, having restored our vessel through highly technical and convenient off-screen means, the Enterprise returns to the mission at hand, ranking some of our lesser missions for the entertainment of our audience. And after the completely muted but totally there Star Trek theme, hello to all, and we are so happy to welcome you back to another episode of Dorkfest the Podcast. Thank you for indulging our own mock Trek episode introduction that not so subtly highlights the shortcomings of this mostly great series. We greatly appreciate your support and every pointy ear lent to our dorky discourse. And as always, we ask that you take some time to subscribe to our podcast through whatever crystalline entity you choose, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever the Romulans have on new technology these days, your choice. To open this episode, first, let's meet our crew. I'm Gabe Freemuth, and I'll be hosting this diplomatic summit, and I'll be joined by delegates from several other respected dorky worlds in the Federation. Opening our hailing frequencies, we have future Maquis officer Dan Freemuth on a secure channel. Still sore over the Battle of Wolf 359, Commander Dan? That's particularly harsh, because Wolf 359 harkens back to Josh's upset with me as it relates to drafting Captain Picard and Benjamin Sisko in the same Star Trek crew, knowing that Sisko's wife died at the Battle of Wolf 359. That's harsh, Gabe. I'm going to go uh, prop my leg up on, a, on the side of an ensign's console for a moment. But are you still sore about it, though? No. He's just <laughs> sore that he didn't think of it. Oh, of note there also is the attendance of noted Admiral Josh Freemuth, the negotiator of a previous settlement on Mordan 4, here to once again diffuse rising tensions over the merits of various Star Trek episodes. Space travel been agreeing with you, Admiral? Uh, it absolutely has, Gabe. And as my first order of business, uh, as since my promotion to Admiral, I'm going to officially recommend changing the name of Mordan 4 to Less Dan 4. And finally, we have with us the representative and potential escaped holodeck program, Ambassador Moriarty, er, that's traveling under the name Jordan Freemuth, it looks like. Feeling like a ship in a bottle, Jordan? Perhaps let loose from one? I certainly am. They are, they are great fun. Um, although, I have to say, I've also been feeling like this has been longer than just four years. It could have been uh, 30 seconds only. Could have been. I've, and it also, I, I, I feel like bits and pieces of me have been showing up throughout holodeck programs for, for longer than that. Uh, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to get Data to try and clean that one up uh, when the rest of us are sleeping. I'm sure he does good work during those times. I would prefer Mr. Uh, Broccoli. Yeah, call Reg. Yeah, there we go. Broccoli. That's right. That's right. He's the guy to call. <laughs> well done, Mr. Broccoli. All right. Uh, again, it's good to have you all here, both in the Dorkfest and you at home. Today, we're doing a riff on a Dorkfest, the podcast episode we did a little while back, where we inducted four films into the Bad James Bond Movie Hall of Fame. 
And today we're doing something similar. We're casting our expertly dorky gaze over all 176 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. We aim to bring you the common failings of the otherwise classic Next Generation series that ran from 1987 to 1994. And while you'll almost surely hear us praise various bits of this series that we do love dearly, we all grew up with it, you'll probably hear us mostly poking fun at the low-hanging fruit that Star Trek The Next Generation, admittedly and occasionally freely, offers to Trekkies like us and uh, audiences around the quadrant. So let's set the stage a little bit, warm ourselves up before we go too far into the opening scene of our episode. Uh, before we skip Jerry Goldsmith's excellent theme song, let's warm up to the topic at hand and uh, discuss. Gentlemen, what department would you most like to be assigned to on the Enterprise D? It's a big ship. It's got a lot of jobs on offer there. If you're on the Enterprise, what department are you in? So for me, two choices came to mind, and part of the way that I was thinking about this question was the, the social aspect, the relational aspect of who else would I be spending my time with, or you know who, who would I have access to. Um, and engineering came to mind, but then I realized and remembered that early on especially, if you were in engineering, that meant that you were with Jordy, which is cool, but it also meant you, you were usually with Wesley, which was admittedly less cool and really, really annoying. So I'm gonna steer clear of engineering and in choose, I will, be, I will be choosing the security tactical department. So in thinking about security, you have you know, two great characters, both playing chiefs, chiefs of security. You have uh, Tasha Yar played by Denise Crosby, very much a character that many of us wish would have stuck around a little bit longer, um, and then, but followed up by Lieutenant Commander Worf. Um, both excellent characters, and for that reason, those are the characters that I would like to be hanging out with. An interesting choice. I, uh, you surprised me a little bit, but thinking about it, you know, you at that station, Tactical is the coolest station on the Enterprise Bridge. I mean, you get the, the whole sort of bow section behind the command chairs up there, and, and they're not red shirts anymore, so I think you're a little safer, right? They're wearing the... Uh, the gold in the security officers are in, in the next generation day. So, all right. Very nice. Yeah, very absolutely. Nice. Well, and I've also found myself to be more fond of the standing desk of late. So that's another benefit. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely got to be a lot better for your back. That's, that's why Worf was always so spry. You know, he's always just standing at the ready at tactical. Uh, Josh, how about you? What, uh, what department do we find you in? Well, I totally agree with Jordan that you want to steer clear of engineering, but my rationale for that was that there was just always a coolant leak going on in there. You were always having to duck under that emergency door that came down. So I definitely want no part of engineering. I'd like to be the transporter chief. Um, you get to keep your finger on the pulse, who's coming and going from the enterprise. Um, really be a, a source of Jordan was talking about the social aspect um, could be a source of like inside information could parlay that into some uh, you know internship relationships that I might want to pursue or using it for like to advance my Starfleet career um, but also you know just you know, it's essentially like your own private office for as long as nobody's beaming in or out the, the transporter room so I would want to be the transporter chief what a great answer, and and so well reasoned. I mean, of course, this is this is Transporter Chief Josh we're talking about here. So I mean, I I, I see it in my mind's eye. I can see it. I'd, I would be. I would love to beam aboard the Enterprise and and see a smiling back, sir. We got him. He's he's here. I I, I would be hopeless repairing the pattern buffers, but you know, I, I could I could glide that little thing up and down. I, I could do that. 
hey, just get me through that ion storm. We'll be all right. Are you sure you don't want to do a, a dive under the, the safety divide and engineering, though? That always looks pretty cool. No, that, I, I am not spry like, like my younger brother, Jordan. I definitely don't want to have, be put in the position of having to do that. Jordan, I did mean to ask, if in, in your position, are you, uh, are you like security or are you tag? I know you said both, but are you like leaning one way or another? Are you playing with the hand phasers or the photon torpedoes? Oh, that's a difficult decision. I mean, I'd really like to have both, but I think, I, I think I'd ultimately like to be at tactical. I always remember on like the toy version of the bridge, that was just a very cool setup part yeah. of that, a part of that um, location. So yeah, I'll, I'll put it at tactical. Straight up tactical. That's cool. I'm going to be decidedly less cool than both you guys because um, I, I was thinking about this and like, I, I don't I don't really want to run the ship. Like it's, it's, it's pretty great, but there's a lot going on there. And um, I don't really, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm out of engineering for me. That's just too much math. You know, I'm not really certain what the state of the arts there are in the 24. I'm certain people do it, but I've got to be on the enterprise somewhere. So I think it comes down to something boring. Like I, I'm thinking about, um, uh, some of you know Picard has a background as an archaeologist in, in history and something like that. There's a fair amount of that going on. And I think it would be pretty cool to be one of those guys who's a uh, uh, you know a historian like what's her name, Lieutenant McGivers from that other series, <laughs> Lieutenant McGivers, um, and just be the one who like studies the Iconian culture you know that they encounter early on. You know, one of these impossibly old. Uh, I think that would be kind of cool just to do some galactic archaeology. Yeah, you're the character that gets called upon in one time, one time, one time. in yep. one <laughs> random season two episode <laughs> and is never seen again. He's a specialist. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm on lease from whatever the studio's making in the next lot over. Um, and let's round this out here. Uh, Dan, you're on the Enterprise. Where are we finding you when Josh beams us over? Well, it's interesting that you say when Josh beams me over, because I had a pretty similar thought process to Josh in terms of being in the know about who's coming and going, but I took a far less risky position. I'm going into the shuttle bay. Now, I want to be like Josh and kind of know who's coming and going, but the transporter is way too much responsibility. There have been way too many transporter accidents relative to shuttlecraft accidents as it relates to crafts coming and going from the Enterprise. Plus, Next Generation implemented some really cool shuttlecraft design, so I'm all on board with that. I feel like the best of the best in terms of dignitaries and guests for safety purposes are going to come via shuttle so i'm going to be right there on the cutting room floor you know when they when they hop on board the ship plus anytime we have to bring on large amounts of debris from other ships and we have to solve mysteries it all gets spread out into the shuttle bay so i can put on my colombo hat while I'm doing Star Trek and solve some mysteries in the shuttle bay, but ultimately not be all that responsible for a whole heck of a lot. Wow. See, there is the well thought out answer. That is, I mean, the only thing you have to worry about is all those times they have to depressurize the, the shuttle bay. Pretty much just envision me as that guy in uh, hollow pursuits, that one blonde haired guy who, who is really helpful. His, he's the guy in 10 forward where his drink gives way underneath and then ends up helping Jordy and Barkley. I'm basically that guy. That's, and you get, you get the tractor beams, That's uh, or at least in part. That's part of your deal, at least those mini ones that they have guiding shuttle pods in. 
yeah, I'm all about the mini tractor beams. The large ones, that's hand, that's handled, that's, that's above my pay grade. That's that's handled yeah. on the bridge. I don't know though, Dan. If you're if you're worried about a transporter malfunction, how worried are you going to be staring into the deep chasm of lifeless space out that huge opening all day, every day? Are you kidding me? What a view. What a view. Well, I, everybody, I wants to go to, everybody wants to go to forward to relax because of the tremendous view you get of outer space. I get that view every single day. I'm good and with there's it. A, and there's a force field there to keep you secure. And you definitely you know, don't have to hit just like one or two buttons to release it. And, and nothing ever goes wrong with the force field. <laughs> and don't forget, it's not often that when you're opening that force field that you're actually in the shuttle bay itself. There's that other room where you have to go through a door and then into the bay. So when we're, when we're you know, removing that force field, there's at least a couple of layers between me and, you know, the abyss of space. And, and you know what? That is a great point that the Enterprise pretty much always operates perfectly to protocol. Um, nothing strange ever happening, necessitating. Yeah. There's gonna be 100, 176 episodes of perfect operating procedure. A truly boring show, ladies and gentlemen. Everything goes right all the time for 176 hours of television. <laughs> if that had been the case, we wouldn't be here talking about it. Oh, man, guys, phenomenal answers. And I'm, I'm going to give myself an asterisk of another job because I feel totally outcooled by these answers. I'm going to be less of a nerd. Um, and my asterisk is going to be what I thought Dan was going to say. I'll, I'll take Guinan's spot. I'm going to be the bartender in 10 forward. That just seems, it seems like a nice place to hang out. You know, you can't even worry too much about rowdy patients because of the synth hall. They can just shake it off. I totally thought about 10 forward, but I expected that this group would not accept it as an acceptable department within the enterprise. And since Guinan is presumably if not timeless, she's at least very old. It feels like she's got that position on lockdown. Yeah, it's uh, nobody's beating her for that job, no question. But uh, the moderator will take it as an asterisk because it's uh, it would just be a decidedly cool gig. Excellent work, dorks. Um, I'm going to put in for extra shore leave on Riza for all of you. Uh, and now, of course, though, to the mission at hand and the rising action of the episode. This is where stuff starts going wrong. Uh, we'll start off by going over those elements commonly found among the worst episodes of The Next Generation, or let's say not the worst ones. These are the episodes that are good if you like Star Trek, but they're not the first ones we'd show to get people into Star Trek. Each dork is going to offer up three episodes after we go through uh, those tenets of mediocre Trek. Each dork will offer up three episodes for nomination into the bad Next Generation episode Hall of Fame after we debate their merits in a full Starfleet tribunal during our final question, we will induct one episode each into the Bad Trek episode Hall of Fame with the catch that none of us can induct any episode that we nominated ourselves. Do I have readiness reports from all decks? Acknowledged. Affirmative. Standing by. Then as a wise captain once said, make it so. For one point, and Jordan, we'll start with you here. What are the hallmarks of a bad or middling episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? What are its weak points? So I'm going to start with something that does enter into at least one of the episodes that I'll be talking about for the two-point question. Um, and that's that occasionally, if not more than that, uh, you'll find multiple, usually two or three different conflicts, conflicts in a single episode. Um, almost as if one wasn't enough to fill the entire 45 minutes. Um, and this is something that I find doesn't always necessarily work ineffectively um 
but it's just, I guess, narratively a little off-putting that all of a sudden we're switching problems or we're switching conflicts halfway through the episode or, or you know, part of the way through the episode. Um, and I feel like a lot of times the way this happens is that the, the, the conflicts aren't necessarily entirely different. They, they might be related to one another. They might be under the same sort of umbrella. Um, but it's as if you know, they started telling the story and they got about halfway through and they realized, okay, well, we're going to solve this at about like 38 minutes, but then what are we going to do for the remaining seven minutes or so we need something else to happen we can't just have wesley whining or guardy or, or guinan tending bar or something we need something else to happen so that was something that i always found slightly frustrating about some of these mediocre episodes is just you know that that specific type of plot problem that you had these these multiple conflicts um sort of bogging down the episode so jay i i actually will go ahead and disagree with you here only slightly um I think in a, you know, what are these episodes, like 45 minutes long with commercials? I think you need more than one plot line. Like, you need a B-plot in most episodes. Like, there are some, like your best of the both worlds, uh, your, your booby traps, where, okay, you know, you have one problem kind of carrying you through that episode, and that will suffice it. But a lot of them, you do need something else. Now, I will agree that sometimes that B-plot sucks, um, th there was one season six or seven episode, I think it was called Force of Nature, where the B plot was Data trying to train a spot, his cat. And that couldn't have been less interesting, even to someone obsessed with Star Trek The Next Generation like myself. Um, so those B plots can definitely have some weak stories attached to them and that's where they can really drag down an episode i think also too you know josh you bring up an interesting point in terms of the multiple storylines and and i think that when i was talking about conflicts i may have been talking about some something slightly different than that i, I do agree that a lot of times um the episodes that have those multiple storylines and that may then have those multiple problems sort of affecting different characters that can sometimes make for a good episode um I'm thinking of specifically a uh, season two or three episode that I will definitely be mentioning um, in not to, yeah, season two episode. Um, oh, you, when, we can get into it then, but yeah, if you don't want to give it away now, that's fine. I just, you know. It, 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 it's slightly outrageous. To Jordan, to your point, you're right. I mean, first of all, Josh is right that in a lot of these episodes, you do need multiple plot lines to be able to carry through not only a 48-minute time frame, but also to engage as many of your quote-unquote main characters as possible. I mean, the big-time problems, we know Picard's going to be involved, Data's going to be involved, Jordy's going to be involved. But, like, what's Dr. Crusher doing? Or what's, you know, Troy doing at any given time? Is Worf in a security aspect needed if we've got, you know, a glitch in the holodeck, for example? But the problem that I think the mediocre-to-bad episodes what happens with them is sometimes when that subplot ends up being the main plot of the episode where on screen, you're like, well, wait a minute, this is clearly the bigger issue, but we spent like 15 minutes on that. And we spent 30 minutes over here, an episode that I'm going to allude to that I don't think probably is going to be one that I necessarily submit uh, is an episode called in theory where data investigates the idea of a relationship with a crewmate. 
while that's going on and we spend the majority of the episode, I mean, that's the A plot point in that episode is how does Data navigate this relationship with uh, Jenna DeSoro? And that's all fine and good, except while that's going on, there's a huge problem that the Enterprise is basically weaving through these black holes in space, even to the point where a crewman actually is killed as a result of what's going on. Yet we spend more time with Data's new program. And now I've got this special program just for you. And we go through the perfect relationship. Then Data thinks it's time for a lover's quarrel. There's this odd scene where everything's going fine. And then he's changes up to be this suave guy. But then that quickly dovetails into the lover's quarrel. And then he seems to have like a mommy complex. And it's just very odd. And it clearly is not, I mean, it clearly is not going to go well from the very beginning. But an episode like that, where clearly a plot that should take a secondary position ends up being the main focal point, and that could have been interesting. An android trying to navigate a real-life relationship, but it kind of becomes cringeworthy because, you know, it's just going to go south right from the get-go, and it basically falls apart in the span of about a half hour. But kind of an episode like that, and I think that also speaks to another point where next generation episodes tend to struggle. And that is that I thought, I think this series really struggled with writing relationship, either relationships or relationship conflicts for its characters. That episode is a good example. The Riker and Troy romantic stuff gets really mixed up and jumbled. Any episode in which Wesley, I mean, an episode, a season two episode called The Dauphin, when Wesley falls in love for the first time, is basically unwatchable. Um, you know, I love Booby Trap, but Jordy in the beginning trying to woo that other crewman on the beach, I mean, that's cringeworthy. And then the only time the guy can find love is with this conjured up holodeck image. And then when he finally does meet the real Leah Brahms, we all know that goes to, you know, you know what in the handbasket. But it seemed like actual human, like, loving relationships were a real struggle, I think, for this series. And and that's a problem because that speaks to big time character development and how we get invested in these characters. And I think that was a, a point where it really struggled. Which is in part interesting because while they struggle so much with romantic relationships, I would argue that potentially even better than the original series, potentially better than other, other series, they do really, really well with friendships. You, you know, I think of Data and Jordy obviously as being a, being a big one, but then also the, the friendship and sort of on and off, uh, on and off uh, romantic relationship between Picard and Beverly is another one that I think of as well. So I think that's, you know, part of where you still get a lot of this investment with the characters. But Dan, I do think you're absolutely right that where they really, really struggle is with those romantic relationships. Lovesick LaForge episodes are just dreadful sometimes. And even Booby Trap, which is a good episode that we've mentioned a couple times already. The entire opening to that episode is Jordy on a date, which is absolutely dreadful. Um, Galaxy's Child, Dan, which you alluded to, Jordy is extremely creepy in that episode. Aquiel is another one. They just keep going back to this. I don't know why. Um, Lovesick LaForge episodes, a whole vein of episodes that I find really, really bad. 
it is striking to realize exactly how many of those they really did make. I mean, it's it's a handful. I'm it's sure a, I forgot a few. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a solid handful of episodes. And to the larger point too that this definitely, and I think LaForge is the best example of this. But um, it is absolutely true. The for whatever reason, the writers who, as Jordan points out, otherwise had no problem writing everyday relationships in in friendships and you know co-working relationships and whatnot, have just about zero ability to write anything romantic or believable in that arena. Um, and if they, it, it happens, it happens very rarely. Um, we get, whether it's Wesley and, you know, his first pangs of love or whether it's Jordy's consistent pangs of love or whether it's Riker's nonstop broadcast of his own love. And, you know, that's what Riker's on board for basically in the first couple seasons. He's the Kirk replacement. I think that there were so many lovesick LaForge episodes that Paramount, Paramount may have actually put out like a DVD box set of them. I mean, that's just free money right there. I mean, you might, why not? We'd, I'm, certain, I'm certain somebody we know has probably two of those box sets. Those box sets were great. Like before they were all on Netflix, I remember like combing through like, all right, well, if I get this one, I get Q-Who, but if I get this one, I get Reunion. But then I don't have redemption, so is it worth getting? Re- oh, that, that was a tremendous little. Yeah, you sort of had to weigh your episode yourself. Which box set to get? There was definitely a formula to that to that formation too. There were you, you definitely had you had to eat one to get the other three. <laughs> so true, uh, Jordan. It's a good point. Um, I was thinking about your your multi plot, you know, your ABC plot um, concerns, and I think that's valid, especially with Dan's point that the. Um, in, in various cases, the B plot is often stronger or more interesting than the A plot of what's going on. And yeah, well, it is, I think the best ones, the better episodes do the multi-plot thing, but everybody's working toward the same goal, ultimately. Like, I'm thinking of um, Disaster. I can't remember exactly what season. I think it's like five or six or something. But um, yeah, I think, yeah, um, season five. But yeah, in that, uh, the Enterprise has just kind of gone haywire. Everything goes wrong at once. And you've got various unlikely groups of people that are all trying to figure out what happened to the Enterprise now that it's depowered and floating through space. You've got Picard in the turbo lift with kids. That's not great for him because Picard hates kids. Um, you've got Troy taking command on the bridge, which is a cool sequence. Um, and then you've got Worf, uh, you know, being a nurse in 10 forward, which is also kind of a fun Worf moment. But everybody's working toward the same thing there. Um, and I think that's, and, and other episodes bear that out too. Um, uh, so I, I think that de- they're definitely better when all the plots are sort of in service toward, even if you don't necessarily realize it yet, toward the same. The tricky thing with episodes like that, Gabe, though, is I'm thinking of the episode Family, where they're all, there are these three main channels that you're following throughout the episode, only it's, I, I really only want to be with Picard and Robert. Like, Worf and his mom, whatever. Worf and his mom and dad, you know, eh, whatever. Um, you know, Nikolai Roshenko with the, I've got all the specs and diagrams at home. Like, that, that was funny the first time. But after that, there wasn't much there. Wesley Crusher is, uh, you know, as you might have figured out, not our favorite character on this podcast. Um, his family role in that episode is not great. We just want to spend more time with Picard and Robert, and anytime you go away from them in that episode, it just feels like you're missing out. Until you said that just now, I had kind of forgotten those other two parts of the episode exist. You, you say yeah. that episode to me, and I basically just think it's Picard back home in France. That, that's a great point, Josh, because sometimes it feels like these episodes are trying to do more than, yeah, really, they need to. I mean, that's a great example where 
there's a lot of meat on that bone when you think about Picard going home after what he's experienced being assimilated by the Borg, the attack at Wolf 359, and all that he's done. Like, there's an awful lot to unpack there. And they could have made not only a really good episode, there could have been a whole season. This was before they were doing season arcs, but I mean, you could have crafted an entire really thoughtful season about Picard and the healing process that he has to go through. And unfortunately, instead, we kind of speed through it in about 45 minutes and intermix it with some more family stuff and some Wesley family stuff because it's just too heavy to deal with in the kind of show that we're crafting here. But I I think one thing you're going to see from some of the episodes that I'm hoping to nominate is the idea of a missed opportunity, that the pieces are there, the stage is set to do something interesting, and it just ends up being kind of a drop the ball. I think one place where they do drop the ball, and this is sort of juxtaposed with the idea that we were just talking about, you know, kind of spraying and praying, hoping three different storylines, we're going to find something that's interesting and craft a neat episode is when they hone in on one character. Okay, this is going to be a Dr. Crusher episode and come hell or high water, we're going to find a conflict for Dr. Crusher to deal with, or it's going to be a Troy episode or it's a Riker episode. And unfortunately I think these end up being the case of like we talked about before, when these big ship conflicts happen, we've got to have Picard and we've got to have Jordy and we've got to have data like bare minimum. Otherwise we're not going to solve this problem. And you get three or four of those in a row and it's like, okay, well we still got this doctor character who did a little bit of stuff here and there, but like we need to give her a a little more to work with. And then you get an episode like sub Rosa where a family member dies and then Dr. Crusher is seduced by the ghost of her grandmother's lover. And it's, that won't come up tonight because that's like an all time bad episode and we're not going there. Uh, And then you get like Troy focused episodes like the child and the loss and night terrors, which I think is more commonly just known as the one where Troy floats in space. Um, there's just not a whole lot that's redeemable to those episodes. And maybe that's in part shame on the writers who didn't do a better job of, of crafting them into larger characters. And, and maybe as the series went along, I think that becomes better. There's a nice episode, a, a B plot where Troy uh, does the training and test to become a, a Lieutenant commander or a commander, I can't remember which one it is. Like that's a neat subplot. A uh, crusher eventually gets to actually take command of the ship at various points. So they give them a little bit more to do, but man, early on, that was, that was a real failing. Those two characters in particular, some Riker centric episodes really are, are not all that engaging. And so just as often as the spray and pray doesn't work for next gen, honing in on certain characters also doesn't work as well. It is interesting to note, Dan, that yeah, that formula of, focusing in on one character produces some of their best, but as evidence with Sub Rosa and all those other episodes you just mentioned, but Sub Rosa especially, um, it, it is amazing how unbalanced uh, it is. I, I think a lot of this does come down as it were to the writer's room. I mean, these are the, you know, the same people that wrote the best of both worlds one and two um, are, you know, not the same people as it were, but you know, it's the same room out of which comes out scripts like the child scripts. Like, and it's amazing when night terrors is the best of those episodes that you mentioned. Uh, but, you know, even as even a character as great as Data, I mean, we brought up in theory, uh, Data definitely is is victim to that plot idea where it's basically like, let's put, let's give Data, we'll put Data, something happens, you know, he's, 
he's trying to be human this way. He's this kind of virus infects his system. Um, he loses his memory and, you know, has to, you know, any of these kind of things. And, and Picard gets that too. Jordy gets that. I feel like it's hard to fault the characters. I think sometimes, uh, you know, as we did with star Wars, we're not trying to rag on the actors here at Marina Sirtis, Gates McFadden. They do everybody on this does great work, but I think kind of like the Avengers, sometimes everybody works better in tandem. You know, we don't need the Hawkeye movie necessarily. That's not to say that we shouldn't feature these characters. I mean, much the opposite. We hope that should they be featured, they'd be featured well. And because they are interesting characters, the actors give them great life. And, and to Jordan's point again, um, the writers do build their interpersonal relationships really well. Um, they're a, it's the best group of coworkers you'll ever find on television. Yeah, Gabe, there are a couple of things that you hit on there that I want to talk about. First, just with the relational idea, um, it makes me think of an episode that Dan already mentioned in Disaster, and, and, and one that I had honestly thought about nominating briefly for a for a couple of things that happens in that episode and, and I'm still thinking that it might make make might make my list but one of the things that I do like about that episode is that you have these sort of unconventional character combinations um you have Beverly with Jordy they're not typically together but you see them working together you have as you mentioned earlier Gabe you have Picard with kids who we know don't work together especially when they're trying to serenade Farajaka um you have you know, Worf, you have, you have Riker with Data, which is, again, kind of an, an, an unconventional or maybe less used character combination. But I think the tandems of those is what definitely makes them effective. Um, you also gave mention the, the writing room, and that made me think of another, I hesitate to call it a fault because it, it feels like more of just something that wasn't totally developed. And as it wasn't developed yet, it, it comes off as a flaw early on. And that's that, at least in the first couple of seasons, you weren't quite sure, the writers weren't quite sure what they were doing with certain characters yet. Two that specifically come to mind for me, um, the first being Data. Um, Data, obviously, by the end of this series, is one of the most relatable, one of the most engaging, and one of the most, um, one of the characters that you feel for the most and can connect to the most. But at least in some episodes early on, one that I alluded to earlier in the Outrageous Okona, um, you're, you're playing with this kind of like comical, almost slapstick data, and, and that works in spades later on but it but it really just felt like and that might just be that when you get the data that you get later on you see that data from earlier on and you're like oh no I, I, I don't want that data I want I want the later data the other character that I think of too is is Riker who I'm not quite sure that they totally entirely figure him out um but the the ladies man Riker for me is is one that's kind of unbearable to watch sometimes I think with Riker, I mean, maybe it's a combination of things, but I think that's a case where Jonathan Frakes, actually, the actor does sort of figure him out and loosen him up later in the series. But yeah, well especially in the first season, he is just so serious. And it, it is really looks like he's performing a like seriously dramatic Broadway play sometimes. And it's just like, dude, like you're on a science fiction TV show. What are you doing? Like, but then I, he they, he grows the beard and loosens up a bit later on. 
and I think we'd be remiss if we don't mention Patrick Stewart in that too, who famously, you know, didn't really want to be doing this for the first at least first season from my understanding it might have been longer than that and after that starts to loosen up a little bit and 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 then provides you know seasons multiple of just fantastic work well the story is that patrick stewart had his bags packed for the entirety of at least the first season not because he did not want to do it although i think to your point jordan it's it's not exactly what he had drawn up for himself, but the bags were packed because he was convinced the show was not going to be a success and that at any point in time, they were going to be told the show has been canceled and you're off the air and go figure out what's next. But Josh, I think you make a great point about Jonathan Frakes in particular loosening up. And that's exactly what the show needed because you've got this by the book legendary captain and he needs a foil sitting right next to him and that is whether it's the ladies man or the poker player or the trombone playing jokester in Riker that that's a nice little kind of foil that's been set up you know for this legendary by the book captain of all captains in Picard that said yeah, I mean, Riker gets the ship into his fair share of trouble as well. Um, he, he is the, the sort of Kirk 2.0 in the ladies' man aspect, and a few too many trips to Risa causes some chaos for the crew. I'm thinking of an episode called The Game. That causes some problems as well, but... You know, I, I think upon further that's viewings... The one with the Google glasses? The Google glasses. That's that's the one. Yeah, but... Uh, and we all know why Riker was such a fan of that game, but I, I think he gets better upon further viewings. But yeah, I mean, early early on. And early on, it's it's tough to watch him. It's tough to watch a lot of these characters. It takes, it takes you know, Patrick Stewart's portrayal of Picard two-plus seasons to, to get the stick out of his you-know-what. This is an interesting thing about The Next Generation, um, because in a way we get spoiled by the original series. There's 79 episodes of that. You know, we have three seasons. That's, that's it. It's really compressed. Um, and in a way, you know, because we get pretty, you know, all the characters as we know them by about episode 10 are all pretty locked in, minus, you know, the odd errant thing here. There's a little more experimentation that we get to do with The Next Generation because we have them for so much more uh, for so much more time but yeah that said it absolutely takes them at least a season and a half to figure out I'm, like I'm always surprised say that Measure of a Man is a second season episode because that has third and fourth season maturity to it that's an early look at the shine that would come to the next generation Picard is in character Riker's in character Brent Spiner is in is in character as Data there um, is with reference to to yeah the sort of odd Datas that we get as they are trying to figure him out that, that Jordan alluded to um, and I do think some of those, that comparison um, with the original series, there, there's a little bit of a shadow of that over the next generation for the first little bit. It's like they're unsure how much they want to pander to it and how much they want to forge their own path. And some of this is, I think, Roddenberry, who I believe is gone by the end of the second series. And uh, he, he had, you know, his own, in a way, sort of in a, in a smaller way, like George Lucas coming back to the prequels. Um, as I understand it, Roddenberry, for all, you know, his genius in setting this up and all that, had a, some ideas about where Next Generation was going to be and was going, um, and ultimately was sort of voted from the island, um, ceremoniously or unceremoniously, I, I can't speak to that. Um, but it is the remaining room that sort of defines what Star Trek is going to be 
for you know the rest of our lifetime certainly i mean uh, star trek as we know it i think we've talked about this doesn't really exist without the next generation's success so it is interesting to note that they have these we remember so many positive things about this and yet here we are at the ready with data so to speak um to back up you know the struggles they've had in in bringing this, these visions to Gabe, i want to I guess, pose two questions to the group off of something that you said, because I think it's a really a thoughtful point that you make about Measure of a Man. Because that is a second season episode and because these characters are still kind of feeling their way and the writers are still feeling their way with these characters, do we view episodes like Measure of a Man and Q Who, which are the two, to me, standouts in season two, do we measure those episodes on a curve and actually view them as better than maybe their counterparts because they were so early on. And then for the purposes of this exercise, we're going to get to here shortly. Do you guys, or did you guys view first and second season episodes on a curve and maybe not punish them quite as drastically as you did later episodes because of that feeling out process? I definitely graded first and second season on a curve in terms of like, okay, yeah, there was something decent here in terms of like when i've ranked my favorites i don't think that i have considered that q who and um data lore arsenal of freedom uh skin of evil uh, are, are particularly early episodes and then maybe give them an extra point i don't think i've done that but for the purposes of this i definitely have taken those first and second seasons with a grain of salt and tried to cut them a break. Yeah, Dan, to take your second question first, I would say that for this exercise, to echo Josh, I, I think whether purposely or not, uh, whether consciously or not, I think that was definitely happening. Those first two seasons are, I mean, I think to a large part, we may have just stayed away from them to begin with. Um, but in reference to the other question, I don't think that I would grade those great episodes from the first two seasons on a curve, because for me, it more showed the potential that they had. It wasn't necessarily that they, it's not that their talent was bad during the first two seasons, and then such, this was so above talent that we need to grade it, at, grade it above that. It was more just that they were reaching the potential that they were then able to reach more consistently later on throughout the series. I think these are all good points. Um, and I think, you know, it's worth noting too, that anything needs to build a little bit of momentum and, you know, it's perhaps especially a troop of actors. And I, I think it was Josh who said that it was Jonathan Frakes who figured Riker out. And I think that's true of all these, before very long, all these actors knew it with, yeah, I think it's fair to say that Patrick Stewart, uh, perhaps through out of some reticence, uh, took a little longer to zero in on Picard um, than the rest. But everybody, I think, finds themselves um, pretty early on. And, and they're the, it, it's the actors, I think, that and, and some and some great writing sometimes, as well as as we're discussing tights of bad writing. And with regard to the first and second season episodes, yeah, I think it's absolutely fair to say I've graded them on a, on a curve, but I think it's also fair to say that, and we've discussed this a little bit, when it comes to the next generation, there's a, there's a pretty standard level of quality. You know, if we're giving grades, you know, what's going into the into nominations tonight are not A and B or B minus level episodes, nor are they going to be D or F level episodes, but there's not a whole lot of straight like C level episodes, I think. Um, the middle of the road for Next Generation is pretty narrow, uh, and I think first and second season are 
pretty emblematic of that. And I do give them a bit of the, a bit of a break because, you know, they're getting their, their sea legs, their space legs. They're getting their patterns enhanced. I don't know what to say there, but um, yeah, I also think that they're also fine, you know, conceptually they're Star Trek. Um, and that's really the worst. I mean, some of those first, some of them are very bad. Code of Honor is terrible and doesn't need to be watched ever again. But, you know, again, you also have stuff like Arsenal of Freedom is, a, is um, I, that was always, I always had a soft spot for that one anyway. Lock on to my signal and beam on down. I also think, I mean, isn't it fascinating? We just talked about the first and second seasons being like the feeling out period and these characters finding their way. And then I think season three is the best single season of Star Trek that's ever existed across all seasons. I mean, it's, it's right up there with season five of Deep Space Nine. So, I mean, they, they found their footing and then they just ran with it. And they ran with it hard. I mean, it, especially the end of season three, Best of Both Worlds Part One. I mean, I, I think they don't even know if they're coming back. Uh, necessarily. I, don't, I don't know if they um, knew they were back on the air yet after that. So that was, uh, if we're talking about the series that saved Star Trek, that might have been the show that saved Star Trek, the single episode. That's, uh, ain't that something. So we're going to, we are going to uh, actually not deal with the best of both worlds right now. We're going to deal with the middling to mediocre of one series, if I can bend the title that much. Uh, we're moving into our nomination phase. Um, but before we go too far, I want to give out the uh, early point, the first point there, and I want to give it to Dan for his thoughtful uh, questions to, to be thrown out there. Everybody came, phasers blazing, uh, shields up, Everybody ready, and um, I, it's it's a tough one, but yeah, for for Dan's thoughtful addition to the conversation there, he is awarded uh, awarded one point. Go and get your your prize game glasses from Riza. Already got them. That's why I'm going to be checked out for the two pointer. That was the plan. So now we'll go ahead and enter our nomination phase. Um, this is our uh, our two point level. Each dork will nominate three episodes. Um, and again, at the end of this, any episode we nominate, we ourselves cannot induct into the Hall of Fame. So we'll have to really make our case to the rest of the dorks as to why we think this episode deserves inclusion in this ignominious hall. So we'll start, uh, we'll start with Dan. We'll go to Josh. We'll go to Jordan. And we'll round out the first round with me. Everybody will go ahead and give their episode uh, their pitch for it. Um, keep it relatively brief. And then we'll go on to talk about our entries for that round. Uh, before moving on to the next one. We'll have three rounds, but let's start off the first one. Dan, take us away, engage, make it so. What do you got? Thank you very much, Gabe, for the point and for the honor of kicking off our nominations for the, I don't know if it's bad, Star Trek Next Generation or at least mediocre Next Gen Hall of Fame here. The first nomination I would like to put up is Descent Part 2. And I normally would keep these two-parters as a singular entity, but I think Descent Part 2 is so reprehensible that it needs to be singled out here. The prospect of the Borg teaming up with lore is the stuff of childhood action figures narrative. Like when you would draft and gather up your action figures and you'd team them up together, you'd be like, yeah, this is the storyline I'm going with today. And when it's on the screen, it's just a complete and utter dud. Also, the other part of that storyline that's totally misrepresented and just misused, 
the ramifications of Hugh being reintroduced to the collective could have spawned a really interesting and intriguing storyline. And they address it a little bit, and then they just completely move the heck on. Total missed opportunity here in Descent Part 2. And I, for one, really did not need an episode anchored by mean data. Data finding his way is sometimes stumbling and awkward to watch, but at least at the end, you're like, all right, it's kind of like they used the Pinocchio reference. He's sort of innocent. There's nothing innocent about mean Data. He's just mean, and I know that it's lore pulling the strings, no Pinocchio pun intended, but it's just unfortunate, and it's just nasty, and I just don't like it. The best part of Descent Part 2 is Beverly in command of the Enterprise, and she proves to be a very adept commander. But unfortunately, when that's the best part of an episode that's got lore, the Borg, and an emotional data, not the sign of a good episode. So Descent Part 2, my first nomination. There we go. Descent Part 2 in the books. Wow. All right. Josh? I'm going to nominate from Season 1, Hide and Q. Um, this episode gets off to a good start right off the bat when, in his captain's log, Picard reveals to the audience that they've just dropped off Counselor Troy somewhere. So we know we're not going to have to have Troy in this episode. Um, th there are some really, really silly bits in this episode with Q. Speaking of characters finding their way, John DeLancey and the writers took a bit to figure Q out. And this is one of the figuring out episodes. Um, the part where he is talking about the rules of the game and then assessing a penalty to Tasha Yar is pretty bad. John DeLancey and Patrick Stewart with dueling Shakespeare quotes in the ready room is pretty darn cool. So I, I, Hide and Q will be my first... Uh, nomination and really just the, the worst part of that is after Riker gets his powers just the apocalyptic smugness of Jonathan Frakes is terrible and just makes you want to gouge your eyes out uh, fortunately he gets his comeuppance at the end of the episode I'll nominate Hyde and Q Hyde and Q in the books we're, we're coming out swinging I like this uh, Jordan go for it so hopefully this will not be a swing and a miss, um, but I'm going to be going with a season six episode, episode number seven, and I will be nominating Rascals. Now, this is an episode that on the whole is fun, but underneath that, it's not much more. This is an episode that one of the problems with it for me is one of the things that I spoke about earlier. You have sort of multiple conflicts and while they're connected, they just kind of feel like we're interchanging them very, very conveniently. You have the, the science ship, you have the science team that's sending the distress call at the beginning. You then have the degeneration of Roe and um, Picard and Guinan and Keiko. And then you have the Ferengi that show up and then that's the connection to the science ship. The problem there is that like the Ferengis make a reference to kind of turning the, the, the science ship people it, it basically using them for slave labor. And that's just kind of left. Like they don't return to that. We don't really find out what happens with them. So that I find a little bit problematic. Um, and then the bigger problem that I think I have with this episode is that, you know, when a, when a Star Trek episode centers around kids 
that's never a bad idea except when it involves removing actors like Patrick Stewart and Whoopi Goldberg. It's just making it really, really difficult to have a effective episode if you're removing those two top performers from your lineup. And a, a dip into the later seasons here, this is um, everything I could have hoped for and more, and I hope you at home feel the same way. I'm sure you do. This is enthralling stuff. And I'm going to round out our first round. Um, Going back to the beginning again, uh, and I'm going to nominate the second episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Naked Now. This is not a bad concept for an episode, uh, and we know that to be the case because the original series did it. And that was a pretty good episode, so why not do it now? Unfortunately, that's kind of also the problem. Uh, this is an, an early, as we spoke of earlier, um, over-reliance on some uh, original series goodwill and tropes. And it's, a, as with many sequels, it's a lesser sequel. Uh, it is also, I'll say it again, the second episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And for uh, a plot that revolves around a virus that exposes, you know, to the core who these people are supposed to be or to make them act out of character, we just don't even know them well enough yet to know what character they're acting out of. Um, it falls back on another old Next Generation trope where Wesley kind of saves the day. So we're already starting to get that ball rolling. Um, I don't necessarily think any of the action or too many of this stuff that happens within is necessarily even that bad. I think um, if you saw it as I did, after you've seen a bunch of Star Trek The Next Generation, it'll make a little more sense. But um, they make some curious decisions. And yeah, while it's fun to watch Patrick Stewart do a sort of little bunny hop over the door frames, it's, um, it's just not enough for a whole episode. Is that the one where the dude in engineering is juggling the isolinear chips? <laughs> I think that's the one. That is 100% correct, because that's the rube who's goofing around while Wesley ends up saving the day. This, this was, of course, when Wesley was going to be the crux of the show. He was going to be the main guy. The whole point of the next generation was going to be the evolution of Wesley Crusher. And I think we're all in agreement that, thankfully the series went in a different direction because of episodes like Gabe has pointed out. It's like, but I, I think that's a great nomination by Gabe though, because we were all chuckling our way through Gabe's description. Um, so, you know, Star Trek is supposed to be fun. If there's something fun about this episode, it doesn't have to be good, but if we can chuckle through it, then I'll, then I'll press play. You know, it, when I see it run across my Netflix queue, and so that makes it redeem. I just find it a very frustrating episode because you just, you don't have to, this is the time where you're sub theoretically, even from like an audience perspective, you've got the original Trekkies built in out of curiosity for at least a handful of episodes. It's the second one. Try and stake some of your own territory. Um, I mean, yeah. I guess the thought is like, you were going to get to know the characters by knowing who they're not, but that's just so obtuse. Yeah, that that's a really great point, Gabe, that, the Trek fans you had hooked in already. They're going to give you at least a handful of episodes, maybe even a whole season to screw it up before, you know, they jump ship. And you're right. In episode number two, they say, okay, we can't come up with any original. So we're just going to retread what the original series did. And your point about episode two, trying to reveal who these characters are when we don't even know, who they really are. That's a phenomenal point. I want to go back to Jordan's nomination 
of Rascals, because that was an episode that I had looked at nominating as well. And the yep. reason being, this is later on, and the series should know better. Uh, this is a season six episode, and Jordan's point about kids in Star Trek is right. It's never a bad idea. The problem is it's just often executed very poorly. You begin with yet another transporter malfunction. How many times do we have to go to the transporter well for a problem to crop up on the Enterprise? Now, I will say this. I thought that the kid... Um, portrayals of these characters was actually not too bad. The little kid actor portrayals of Guinan and Keiko and Picard and Rolaren I thought was fairly relatable. It is a little odd that the kid portraying Picard, was he not the same kid actor who was stuck in the turbo shaft with Picard singing Frere Jaca in Disaster? He ends up, he's in the series at some other point, I'm fairly certain. I do remember I him being think, familiar. I don't, I don't know if he was one of the disaster kids. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's the same kid. I do think that they look similar. But but Dan, I, I think you're right that the that the fault of that episode is not so much the actors that the, the child actors that are performing those roles uh, because I do think that they do a good job. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's both, it, it, it's comical with some of the moments with young Picard kind of like, you know, he still does the, still does the, the, the straightening of the shirt. Um, and then actually I think the two that I find the most engaging is the relationship between Ro Laren and, and Guinan. Um, and then perhaps the best scene in that whole episode is the one at the end where you have Whoopi Goldberg speaking to as Guinan speaking to the younger Rolaren. I, I, I think that there there's a there's a powerful sort of through line in terms of messaging at that end point, but it takes you so long to get there. And I also don't think that they entirely earn it there at the end. Yeah, my other problem with that, I got a couple of problems. Uh, one, the idea that the Ferengis could overpower multiple Klingon vessels, right? Because they show up with not one, but two Klingon ships, then commandeer the Enterprise, but then also this handful, we see no more than a half dozen Ferengi, that they could then be outmatched by children. That pill's a little tough to swallow. Another big issue that I have with that episode is the idea that Keiko O'Brien being turned into a child um, th- there really is something there um, that they sort of address and then quickly brush aside because it's just a side character of Keiko O'Brien. But the idea of Keiko being turned into a 12-year-old, if that's in perpetuity, we got real problems here for Miles O'Brien, for Molly O'Brien. And I know these are secondary characters, but there's a lot of meat on that bone that we really just chose to kind of address. Like, okay, we acknowledge there's an issue there, but it's too big an issue. We really kind of don't want to deal with it the rest of the way. Everybody drink. Dan said meat on that bone. Uh, I'll take some tea. Earl Grey. Hot. So Rascals is an episode that makes me think of something uh, about an episode we talked about earlier, Family, where if you dealt with each of these for a little more time, it may have been good, uh, you know, Picard trying to maintain command while a child. Dan, as you said, Keiko trying to be a wife and mother. Ro getting to be a kid again, or really enjoy being a kid for the first time. Guinan is just, you know, out there 
love and life, no matter what age she is, you know, Guinan, you can't tend to the bar. You're, you're only 12 years old. She'd just be like, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Like, I think any one of those could have been good if they spent more time with it, but it's all so rushed because it's all happening to all four of them at once in 45 minutes. And we have to resolve it because it's a Star Trek episode. That, that, that struggles a little bit. But that's also then compounded by the fact that you have these other conflicts going on. And I know that like there needs to be a reason for the shuttlecraft to be, you know, rushing back and for them to have to be beamed out. Like, so like I understand there are reasons for why it's happening, but it also speaks to that issue of like, if you stick to, to one conflict and find a way to stretch it out, that then can also solve some of those problems. Josh, I, I want to talk about Hyde and Q briefly. This is the second Q episode, correct? On, on the heels of Encounter at Farpoint, right? Right. So Q is still not the jokester that he becomes in the likes of uh, Tapestry and Deja Q and eventually in the end and all good things, right? But he's getting there, and those right. are the best parts of this episode. But, but why this episode ranks here is there's not nearly enough of that. And there's smug Riker when he gets the powers. There's the odd, like, revolutionary war or civil war Confederate alien creatures we got to fight off as well vicious animal things <laughs> yeah okay there you go right yeah I'm, I'm just sort of remembering bits and pieces of this episode and thinking that you know in the pantheon of q based episodes i'll sign up for q episodes long before i sign up for troy episodes and crusher episodes and and even many Geordie and Worf episodes like John Delancey as Q is tremendously enjoyable eventually, but that's not where we are quite yet with this episode. I think he's, he's pretty close. I agree. He's not fully farmed yet, but I was surprised. I was ready to put encounter at Farpoint on this list. And I went back because I had watched the, the pilot at the first episode of next generation in a long time. And it's a perfectly good little mini movie introducing the enterprise D it's um it's actually kind of, I think everybody's, as they're all meeting each other, it's all fine. But I actually, I was struck by how much, yeah, John Delante is not having nearly as much fun with the role yet, but a lot of the architecture is there. I liked how he was sort of uh, taunting the crew up through the ages of humanity, different military uniforms going all the way up through uh, to their 21st century tribunal. How lucky are we to live in those times? I did want to just talk briefly about Dan's nomination of December like part to, two. Please start, um, I like to piggyback off that. Well, because one of the things that I thought of with that, so we talked earlier in the one point question about how, you know, part of the, the those good episodes from the first couple of seasons were when they were reaching the potential. I look at Descent Part 2 and the, like Dan had said, like I hadn't really thought of this one because I was I was kind of just dismissing two part episodes as a whole. But that's an episode that just came in with such potential, especially because December part one is good. December part one is a good episode and, and you, and you, you build it up, you have this potential and it just falls flat. And, and it's, it, it, it's not a bad episode, but it's just disappointing. 
this also falls victim to what we sort of poked fun at in the uh, opening of the episode, where in order to sort of reset data, oh, it's we, we need a, a phased Cadian pulse. Okay, any ideas on how we do that? Well, if I steal this piece off this Borg, then I'll be able to peel back this unit and oh, inside there's a little thing where I can go boop, 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 and then slide it up against the force field and whammo, phased Cadian pulse, data is reset. We're on the way towards getting out of here. Um, a, a lot of this sort of Star Trek science magic um, gets sprinkled in along the way to wrap these things up. That's a particularly bad one. They're also, as near as I remember and can tell, there aren't really any ramifications for Data's actions, are there, in this episode or in an episode like Brothers when he hijacks the Enterprise to go to Dr. Noonien Sung because he's got an emotion chip for him? That part's a little a little suspect to me. I mean, I realize he was under some control, but if you're going to have an Android as a key member of your ship, computers can be hacked. So is data responsible for his actions there? Or do we just pass that off as, Oh no, he nearly killed his best friend. And we're just going to pass over it with two quick lines of dialogue. I mean, he said he was sorry, right? So. Well, so you're, you're sorry. You're sorry. He's sorry. (laughs) We're all sorry. I, I was I wanted to yeah, follow that up too because I, I remember when you said Descent, Dan. I was thinking you can't be serious because I'm remembering Descent as an excellent episode. But as we're speaking here, because I, I also did not go back and revisit these, I just remembered like that's a good two-parter. I won't I won't touch that one. I know that's not going to be on the list, but it's coming back to me the way you're the way we're breaking down part two here. Um, part of me kind of likes the weird MacGyvery techno Shinola way that they you know, are able to reset data or escape that thing. I'm thinking too about um, what is it in the original series, patterns of force when they take up a, a piece of metal from the bed and their subdermal communicators and they make a little laser beam out of with a light bulb to break the lock. There's a, clearly a time-honored tradition in Trek for uh, for Techno Shinola. But um, yeah, no, it sounds like Descent Part 1 is a great idea, but it also sounds like um, you know, it's a it's a tremendously gift wrap present, and then you open it up, and it's just packing peanuts. I guess is the idea. It doesn't quite fit all together the way you hoped. Because um, I, I thought it's almost a little. The one thing I guess I'll take umbrage with with you here, sir, is at this point, and especially for Star Trek, but I think just at this point in episodic television, they're not doing the same kind of like long arcs that Q's introduction. I'm sorry, Hugh's introduction um, back into the collective would have that. You know about studying that ripple effect obviously it comes back decades later in in uh, picard uh which is kind of a neat thing but at the time i think you i remember thinking it was just kind of neat that they followed up on that at all because he was introduction back into the collective could have just been another one of those things they they leave completely hanging and at least we get this interesting notion of an opportunistic lore taking in a you know a colony of lost borg you, you know i mean it's he's a charismatic leader and they're lost plus he's also kind of drugging them with emotions um, which is a neat sort of, you know, control subplot. So I, I always thought that was kind of interesting, but I also agree with you that, yeah, mean data is always tough to watch. What a first round, you guys. Uh, to recap, just to make sure we're all on the same page uh, as we continue on into round two, for the round one nominations, we have Dan with Descent Part Two, Josh with Hide and Q, Jordan with Rascals, and myself, Gabe, with The Naked Now. Boy, any any one of these 
we're already in it now, folks. Any one of these could end up on the final list of inductees. Without any further ado or necessary shield modulation, let's continue on into round two. Dan. Okay, I went very deep into the series for my first nomination, the uh, first episode of season seven. I'm going to go pretty early stages here. I'm going to take a second season episode, but I'm going to nominate what I think as a kid, I thought was one of the stronger season two episodes. And upon further views, I don't view it very highly, but it's not total drek. And I'm going to nominate Samaritan Snare. First of all, I'm going to lead with this. How deep into the episode, how many minutes, until Jordy is kidnapped by the Packleds? The answer is 19 minutes. Now, the show is only 45 minutes-ish long. So it takes 19 minutes for us to establish the genuine conflict in this episode. That's a problem. The plot B to this episode, by the way, in addition to Jordy being kidnapped by the Packleds who are supposedly, or they come across as very dim-witted and slow, and because they talk in a rather methodical way, Riker assumes they're morons, and that's how they get their crewmate in trouble. The reason Riker's in command is because Captain Picard is too proud to let Dr. Pulaski do his heart operation on the Enterprise, which in that century, I would think he could just do the, the sort of hubris proud Picard is not a whole lot of fun, but the, it's a, not a good sign when the best part of this episode is a shuttlecraft conversation between Picard and Wesley. When we get the reasoning and the story behind why Picard's heart is no good, we learn of the tale of the Nausicaan in the bar and how he's stabbed in the back. That's a great bit of this episode. The rest of the episode is just kind of left lacking. Um, it's hard to believe the Packleds could truly steal all this technology that they supposedly have commandeered from other races, including the likes of the Klingons and the Romulans. But there are decent little bits to this episode. And I do want to give a shout out to the Packled captain, played by Christopher Collins, who is a name that probably doesn't ring uh, all that familiar to many of us, but he will when I tell you that he was the voice talent behind Cobra Commander in G.I. Joe and Starscream in Transformers. So wow. neat little bit of dork trivia there. A decent episode, but one upon further views, you're like, nah, that's really not that good. So for my second nomination, Dan, you talked about how good season three is. I am going to expose its soft underbelly with... Ah, I'm going back and forth between two, to be honest with you. I'll do Menage à Troy. This is not a good episode. This is a, a, similar to Jordan's Rascals nomination. The ability of three Ferengis, or, or all we ever see in this episode, uh, is a bit hard to believe. And this episode is chock full of not only Deanna, but also Lwaxana Troy. And hey, it's great to see Majel Barrett on the screen, but her character is not tremendous. There is plenty not to like about this episode, but it's fun. As I mentioned earlier, Star Trek is at the very least okay when it's fun. And this episode is a decent amount of fun 
navigating the the Ferengi, and then you get some tremendous meme potential out of Picard reciting the sonnets at the end of this episode. The B subplot of Wesley becoming a uh, field commission to full ensign is is sort of like a oh really that's how we're ending this episode um but it's just another random thing thrown in there but i'll nominate menage a troy very clever wordplay by by you next gen writers i always did prefer acting ensign to the full ensign wesley crusher um for my round two nomination i will be going with an episode that I mentioned earlier that I was thinking about nominating. I've ultimately made the decision to nominate it. It's going to be season five, episode, episode five. And the episode is disaster. All told, this is a quality episode that has, for me, a couple of issues with it. One of the issues that it doesn't have is the problem that I talked about with Rascals in the multiple conflicts. Gabe, you talked earlier with the one-point question, how this is a very sort of fully formed conflict that then you see multiple different sets of characters interacting with. So that, to me, is not a problematic aspect of it. For me, it has two big problems. Um, One is the headless data. So you have Riker and Data that are maneuvering through the um, Jeffrey's tubes and they encounter a force field or something to that effect and they can't get through unless Data walks into it because he will then become a non-conductive force to it. But Riker still needs Data to do the things in engineering that he needs to be able to do. So we just bring Data's head with us so that's just that's that's just weird for me it, it, it i would have rather you had another way of getting just all of data there instead of just the head um for me the bigger problem this with, the, with this episode is the way that it starts so you know so we remember the quote-unquote disaster of it well the disaster is that they ran into a quantum filament um which you know doesn't sound all that terrifying, but you would just think that like on a starship this advanced that you would have some way of detecting these things. And they have a line that's thrown in about halfway through the episode that does say that like these things have no mass, that they are hard to detect. But it just felt like they kind of figured out halfway through the episode, like, oh, wait a minute, like the crux of this episode or the whole initiating event of this of this episode, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that this would be the problem. So we need to throw in this line and say, like, oh, by the way, we ran into this thing because it has no mass. So it's hard to see. Um, So ultimately, my my round two nomination, all in all, a quality episode, but just a couple of things that drag it down. Disaster from season five. All right. Now close out round two uh, with my nomination of season another season five episode season five episode 14 conundrum this is i think another uh pretty okay episode but as far as uh, i think somebody we put it in the notes here it's one of those episodes where i'm normal and everyone else is crazy or i'm crazy and everyone else is normal taken to one of the max there's a, another good handful of that sort of unofficial mini series of happenings on the enterprise and conundrum i think is not the worst one it's not the best one because as with Jordan's uh, points with disaster there, which I think are perfectly valid, I've got a couple complaints to this one. Um, it's it's a great setup, and I think it's a, it's a really neat idea. Um, everybody, you know, it's one of those things, the Enterprise encounters something, everybody on the bridge gets knocked out. When they wake up, nobody knows who they are. Everybody's got amnesia, and there's one new guy among them. And it's not that this guy is, you know, 
he's kind of a doofus, but that's fine. It's just that as a viewer, I spend the whole episode going, it's that, it's guys, look, it's that guy. It's, it's Kieran McDuff. Remember the guy who's never been on the show before? His name is Kieran McDuff. He does not belong in the Enterprise. Why? Because his name is Kieran McDuff. And it just, it takes them basically 45 minutes to figure out that this guy is, you know, not one of them. And they, and you know, the way they go about piecing together themselves is, is okay. And, and um, the character dynamics, I think, are, are mostly kind of interesting. But I think there's a big missed opportunity. Um, we don't need the Riker and Rolair and tension that develops. It's unnecessary for both characters. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity for a very natural connection to have reestablished between Riker and Troy. Now, having said that, I am a huge supporter of the Wharf troy you know, relationship-ish thing that goes on later in the series. I think that's a neat thing for both of them. But I don't see how the writers left this one, you know, just on the table um, to, you know, they even say, I mean, Troy's thing at the end of the episode is, um, or uh, even maybe it's at the start, is that people sort of find each other. You know, they recognize, you know, they'll they'll do something that maybe they didn't know they wanted to. And that sort of uses a joke between Riker and Rolaren. But I think that could have been something that actually meant something for Riker and Troy when they come back to this and remember themselves, you know, then they realize maybe there was something here and we can rekindle that. Outside of that, uh, the final thing that bugs me is another, it's sort of a TV trope, but when Macduff announces himself, he immediately beats the tar out of Worf. And it's always that thing where the toughest guy on the ship always gets his butt handed to him because they have to show off how strong the central villain is. Anyway, I've gone on too long. My Vote, Conundrum, Season 5, Episode 14. Let's talk about our selections, guys. I, I got to jump in here straight away because the last two nominations, I think, are actually pretty good episodes. They're not Mount Rushmore all-timers, but I will happily watch Disaster and Conundrum. And Gabe, to your point about Conundrum, I mean, yes, there, there are many next generation episodes where you as a viewer are sitting there thinking how in God's name is it taking them this long to figure out what in the hell is going on here? I think back to a season three episode allegiance. There's an energy disruption in the captain's quarters. They hail down. Can't. Nope. No answer. We got to send a security team. Oh, he's there. Oh, no problem. Okay. It takes half an hour and the captain singing sea shanties in 10 forward for data to finally bring up hey remember there was that energy distortion gee i wonder if that has something to do with it so this is a problem in this series but i i like that episode i like the little law and order sort of puzzle aspect to some next generation episodes where you got to figure out and jordan to your point about disaster I think the strength of that episode, the main strength of that episode is putting together some of those unlikely tandems are extraordinary characters in extraordinary circumstances. I think that is a real interesting dynamic and, and is a big strength of that episode. To uh, the point about conundrum, you know, it's a fun episode. Um, I think there are better versions of it within the next generation. I think it is. It's it's not exactly familiar ground well it is familiar ground it's just not the same ground um and i think it's it's the it's the most middle of the pack one um because and that's kind of where we are right i mean as we look at this yeah we've got a mix of some episodes that are some are definitely better than others here um but it is that fine line we're trying to walk with this with this best bad hall of fame uh categorizing it's uh, it's going to take all kinds yeah i think that's definitely part of it too is that like as i'm looking at these episodes None of them are bad. The question is, when do they become good? 
and I, I feel like we're trying to find this this middle ground. And you know, full disclosure, I think disaster is more towards the good end of that spectrum than the bad end of that spectrum. Um, but I do feel like there are still faults with it. Yeah, as I was sort of preparing for this, I would made a big list and then I sort of tried to separate it into like, okay, I think this episode is too good or no, I think this episode is too bad. And conundrum and disaster were admittedly two that I didn't even like half consider because I thought they were too good even beyond the ones that I thought were just marginally too good. Disaster, your point, Jordan, the, the quantum filament is a really stupid thing like the enterprise essentially just gets struck by lightning um and this is something that we had never heard of before or since and it's something that completely knocks out an entire galaxy class starship yet we know exactly what it is and we know exactly what it does but whoops we, we stubbed our toe on one and now the whole ship is going to explode sorry yeah, we can't identify it, and there definitely aren't like other races that are trying to, <laughs> you know, trying to harness this this power or anything. It's an opening to an otherwise good episode that's made problematic by that opening. One other thing that I wanted to say about disaster too: you have what is, you know, ostensibly some really fun interactions between Keiko and Worf, specifically when Keiko is going into labor and Worf's response is, you cannot, this is not a good time, Keiko. You have that, you know, which is a logical kind of response from Worf. As someone who just experienced the birth of a child, though, there is this awkward moment where Worf is holding the child immediately after it's born for what's an inappropriate amount of time. It's just, there are several of these sort of problematic aspects that come up. You know, in defense of disaster and that stupid quantum filament, something I always kind of liked about that was, you know, it's space. There's strange new worlds and weird stuff out there. And every now and then the Enterprise is just going to, you know, kind of crash. You know, they're basically just looking for some sort of space MacGuffin to get the action. The idea of the episode is like, let's get unfamiliar characters together in an emergency situation and they all have to work on you know, everything goes wrong on the ship at once. What do they do when they're not with their buddies? Um, perfectly great concept. And yeah, if they've got to do it by, you know, the Enterprise trips over something in space, I guess that's fine. Again, space is big, it's fast, it's weird. I can, th that's the fun thing about science fiction, I guess. You can get away with a little bit, but not, not from the dorks, not from our watchful eyes. And in their defense, I guess that does allow it to be something that happens quickly. If you want the crux of the episode to be, as you said, Gabe, these sort of unconventional character combinations, then, okay, let's make up this thing called a quantum filament, get it out of the way, this is what happened, and then we can get to the crux of the episode. Yeah, we definitely don't want uh, another repeat of the Packleds abducting Jordy 19 minutes into the episode. Let's, let's cut to the chase here, as it were. A wonderful round, too. Uh, and just to recap, as we're, we're really getting, getting down into it now, uh, round two included a nomination by Dan of Samaritan Snare, Josh, Menage a Troy, Jordan, Disaster, and myself with Conundrum. What a, I don't know what I was expecting this list to be, but uh, I don't think it was this. And I am very excited for us to enter round three with Dan's final nomination. I am tragically torn here. I've got three episodes that I'm really looking at, and I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go in. And I think I am going to nominate 
God, I'm surprised I'm going to throw this one out there, but I'm going to say the season six episode, The Chase. And I'm going to send this one out because I find myself at the end completely in agreement with the Klingon. That's it. That's the end of the episode. We go through all this trouble to get a message from an ancient species that says, trophy generation, everybody wins. You guys are all in it together. Good job working it out together. And there's so much good stuff in this episode. Appearances from Romulans, Cardassians, Klingons, you've got the Picard archaeological angle. His professor is a total butthole to his, you know, his protege student. He treats him like garbage, basically making him seem like his decision to become the captain of all captains, the best captain in Starfleet, was a misstep instead of becoming his archaeological apprentice. Obviously, that was wrong. And then you get these neat little interplays. Jordy sniffs out the Cardassians' plan and the Klingons. They're a step behind, even though they got the heads up. But in the end, it's, that's it. That's all we get. We think it could be unlimited power. We think it could be a tremendous weapon. And instead, it's just a message that in the primordial soup of the universe, we all have a little something in common. And... It did also generate the wonderful phrase, you dishonorable Topa. Oh, that was such a good domination. <laughs> oh, it's a, a, an impossible act to follow, but I'm going to stay, again, like Dan, I'm really torn between two. I'm going to stay in season six. And I'm going to nominate the episode Frame of Mind. Um, like Gabe's point of the um, I'm crazy, everyone else is normal, or everyone else is crazy and I'm the only one who's normal. This is a classic one where Riker is going back and forth between this um, alien laboratory and the enterprise and he's not sure which is real uh and there's a halfway decent twist at the end where neither of them are real but it's really you know jonathan frakes is laying it on really thick and he just you know he has to that's what the script calls for but holy moly there's some really awkward parts of of this episode and um the, the effect at the end when Riker finally does crack the code when his like imagined reality shatters into these shards of glass is not great. Like by season six, like this is a situation where in season six, I expect a little better graphics than this, than this for next generation. Uh, you, you all cannot convince me that I'm not insane. I'm nominating frame of mind. Uh, so for my third nomination, if Disaster was a bit too good of an episode, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum and maybe nominate one that's perhaps a bit too bad of an episode, but one that I think still does have a few redeeming uh, qualities. And I'm going to go with uh, season two episode, The Outrageous Okona. I mean, we're talking about what's bad about this episode. Let's get that, let's get right to that. But I will mention some of the things that I like about it. Um, you have 
again, the early data who is not fully formed yet. There's specifically one scene in here where he is listing synonyms for the word rogue. Um, and that just is not funny and comes off as kind of annoying. And annoying data is not good data. Um, you also have a Terry Hatcher sighting in this episode, basically for the sole purpose of having a primal romantic relationship with the outrage of Kona. And that's an aspect of this episode that really, really doesn't age well, that that seems to be like kind of his fundamental character trait. That said, some of the interactions between Guinan and Data, I think are some really powerful or some really effective parts of this episode. I'm thinking specifically of a line that Guinan has to Data where, where she says that you're a droid and I'm annoyed. But you have that, like, she's, she's trying to, and I, I, I guess what I like about that moment is I see it as part of the beginning of her trying to assist him or trying to help teach him what it means to be human in that sense. Um, and she's patient with him. She's patient with him when most other characters are not going to be patient with him. This is another episode where you have the storyline that's very, very quickly wrapped up towards the end where you have these two feuding nations that really, really hate one another, but you have their kids that are in a romantic relationship and Okona is helping them out for some reason. And then the woman's, the, the girl's not going to marry the guy, but then all of a sudden she's okay with it. They had one idea for, I think, what the episode was going to be. And then by the end of it, it had quickly changed their mind and were like, all right, we need to wrap this up quick. And it just doesn't age well. So I am myself now torn uh, between two for my number three here. Um, and my game time decision for my final nomination for the Bad Trek episode, Hall of Fame. It's going to be season two, episode 12's The Royale. I'll be honest, this is not a great episode. There's a lot of that going around, I realize. But um, I think this one is, again, sort of culled from... It's kind of a Frankenstein of an episode that's pulled together from a bunch of different things. The central premise is, uh, you know, there's, there's a planet. It shouldn't have life on it. All of a sudden, there's stuff going down on there, and there's a pocket of breathable atmosphere. And so when they send down the usual away team, it's Riker, Worf, and Data. Uh, they find a revolving door in, in just a blank field. Okay, cool. I'm with you. That's weird. That's creepy. I'm inside. And then when they're inside, it's, the, it's a place called the Hotel Royale. It's, it's sort of an old gambling establishment you know, not quite guys and dolls era, but, you know, around that type of a thing. And they're basically just trying to figure out how to, you know, they're trapped. They can't fit. Nobody will really give them a straight answer. They find a skeleton in the room upstairs, just normal hotel run-of-the-mill stuff. And yeah, ultimately it turns out that uh, uh, there, you know, there was an old mission, uh, an old an old NASA mission that brought, you know, that went awry and brought the ship way out here. And the aliens that took care of the lone survivor of the crash, you know, presented him with this world based on a book they found, a bad, badly written novel called Hotel Royale that was found in the spaceship, which immediately says to me that this is basically just a low rent version of a piece of the action without as much fun, crossed with like a nightmare version of 2001, A Space Odyssey. It just doesn't quite reach what I think it's really trying to do. And all these sections that cut away to, yeah, the the meat of this terrible book like that just keeps going on not even behind the scenes all our main characters are in soft focus in the background of these one-off nonsense pulpy characters that aren't actually advancing the plot except they kind of have to get through their story so the enterprise it's dumb 
it's a dumb episode. I'm just going to straight up say it, but that's why I think it belongs on here. Um, it's always enjoyable to see uh, these guys work their way through a problem. And yeah, it's good set design and you know, all that other kind of stuff. And sure, it's appropriately horrifying to imagine being stuck in the literal realization of a terribly written book for the rest of one's days. Um, so with all that uncomfortable stuff, yeah, that's why I think the Royale is somewhat lacking. That'll be my final uh, addition to our nominated episodes here. Let's go through them uh, before we uh, recap this one a little bit. Let me recap. So what we're looking at here for round three is Dan with The Chase, Josh with Frame of Mind, Jordan with The Outrageous Akona, and Gabe with The Royale. Sound off, gentlemen. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start because, Dan, bravo, great choice with The Chase. And I understand I'm not alone in this one because that was also going to be my my number three. I, I, I'm... Personally shocked that anyone else would consider putting that. I, I, I mean, I didn't this is an episode that I think is, I, I think it's tremendously watchable, but I think there are certain points in it that are like, oh, come on, guys. Like, that's it. Are you serious? So many. And, and that's, that goes back to what I mentioned way back when at the start of this, that I kind of view this as which episodes do I look at had a lot going for them. And in the end just felt like missed opportunities and the chase to me, I mean, they set it up. The Klingons think it's a weapon. The Cardassians think it's unlimited power. And of course it's probably not going to be something like that, but it's this like millennial, even pre then millennial thought of, you're all connected and way to work together and la-di-da. And it's like, no, darn it, this is science fiction. There should be something in there. And it's just like a whole lot of feel-goodery. Yeah, this episode was like they were trying to make an Indiana Jones episode and they ended up with a National Treasure episode, which actually sort of relates to a thought I had. And I'd be curious to see if any of you agree Outrageous Akona, I, I always just thought was like Star Trek takes a stab at Han Solo. And holy cow, did they miss? You know what? I, I'll, I'll admit I was actually having trouble placing the episode despite everything Jordan said. I just don't think about this much until you said their stab at Han Solo. I'm, oh, right. That Okona. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't great. Not to be rude. So I agree with your point, Dan, that I think the chase doesn't go far enough. But I love the fact that I, for all its millennial feel-goodery, as you may, may term it, I kind of love the notion that I, I think the premise of the chase is fantastic. And it's done a total disservice by the 45-minute window that they have to tell it. And, that, and as we've remarked upon time and time again tonight, one of the next generation's biggest weaknesses is to have an interesting premise, a pretty good execution. And then at around the 40-minute mark, they start realizing, oh, man, we need an ending to this thing. And that's kind of what happens with the chase. I don't mind. And in fact, I think it's kind of cool that somebody in the writer's room was like, huh, you think we should try and explain in universe why everybody kind of looks like humans? And like from there, they go off to this really interesting, you know, sort of notion of seated life, you know, across the, you have more in common than separate you. I, I honestly, I think the, the villains in this one, I used the word dweebs earlier. These guys aren't total dweebs, but they're, they're like ensign dweebs. Um, it is cool to get the Cardassians. I think you don't need, as great as the dishonorable Topa line is, I don't think you need his arm wrestling match with Data. It's just not, it doesn't drive the plot. It's like five minutes of the guy, of us knowing exactly what's going to happen 
and the guy being able to do nothing about it. Like you're going to try and bribe data. You clearly know who he is. So, I mean, anyway, um, I do think at the yeah. end that, that Romulan that shows up for 30 seconds, um, his line is great. That very, that tail end when he reaches out and said, you know, maybe one day we, it can be different. You know, he, someone heard it. Someone heard that message of this, uh, alien like you know that was hoping that its offspring would find each other and you know realize their connections and not you know all that millennial feel goodery stuff and that line resonates so well because it's on the heels of picard acknowledging i, I believe it's to beverly crusher that you know what a shame that it you know this message no, fell on deaf ears, ears. Yeah. um yeah. and you're right and and that part of it is interesting and and the role of the alien is played by uh, Salome Jens, who ends up being the female changeling throughout the entirety of Deep Space Nine. And that was basically, I mean, it's, it's almost a, an exact look. So that's what I wanted to actually ask this summit here about, um, because I think this is another missed opportunity. Much as, even though it was kind of a one-off, you have Hugh and Iborg, and then you have him pop up again in Descent to sort of follow up the ramifications of that. But yeah, this this first you know race alien that seeded all these other cultures is pretty clearly intended to be among the founders, right? But I don't think they ever connect that back. And kind of how interesting would that have, would that have been if in, because these shows are running concurrent, those two shows are running concurrently at this point. Next Generation and Deep Space Nine overlap by, I think, two years. So this episode comes out during that time. And how interesting would it have been for them to have solved this mystery? And I agree too with you, Dan, that it should have had a much deeper sort of science fiction-ness to it, something that really made this seed race you know whatever you want to call that those aliens um a little a little more meaningful but how cool would it have been if in the hopeful you know look positively toward the future next generation we have this story where look guys we found the link in early life in the universe that links all of our disparate cultures together and then later on it's like and that same race is now invading our galaxy and try to take back everything i think that's that's an interesting missed opportunity there again as far as really plumbing the depths of this but no instead we get you know five minutes of an arm wrestle with a Klingon yeah and Gabe I think that would have been endlessly interesting and, and the arm wrestling Klingon scene is particularly disturbing because it it reeks of filler for an episode that probably should have been a two-parter if you take the first half of the episode and focus it on professor galen and his relationship with picard and picard's potential regrets uh, not necessarily regrets but his thoughts about the decisions that he's made and, and thinking back on how his life could have been and then literally going out on on basically a vendetta run here because if this is anybody else i'm not sure we even go down this road but because of somebody personally tied to picard now he's got to investigate and then we get into the chase part of the episode, but that really only comes into the second half. And so it all just all together feels rushed. And yeah. then you've got this lazy filler scene. So it just kind of doesn't add up. And again, I think, I think it just speaks to the idea of a missed opportunity, like an episode that with the nuts and bolts, like there's something there, but it just doesn't come together in the end. Could have been worse I, though. Could have just been a recipe for biscuits. I'll send you my mother's Klingon biscuits. No, thank you. I I'm just listening. I don't have a reference as good as any of those. I'm just, I'm enjoying this. I'm glad Josh that you nominated frame of mind because this is an episode that, that I strangely enjoy watching. Uh, Like I know it's not good and I know it's not 
woefully like code of honors sub rosa night terrors bad it's Riker in his kind of established role like Jonathan Frakes has filled that out we're good there but it does have enough of those little twists at the end that kind of keep you coming back for more like you start the episode and you sort of think you know where it's going but then you remember wait I've seen this before and I think there's kind of like a like a double twist at the end. Oh, and yep. And, and there it is. And so it, I think it perfectly fits the definition of this particular brief because it's not good, but it's not horrendously bad. And I guess the way I think about it when, because I, I sort of in the last round chastised the selections of disaster and conundrum for being too good. But then as I was thinking about it, I'm like, wait a minute, those episodes I think are too good. And yet I could off the top of my head right now list 25 episodes that are easily better without having to look at IMDB or go to an episode guide or anything like that. And so if I'm able to do that, then the episode is probably not that good if it falls at best at 26 in my rank just off the top of my head, which I think, I mean, frame of frame of mind is nowhere near 26. It's more like 126, but it's probably right in the kind of sweet spot of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good episode. Well, it's a, it's a good, bad episode that I haven't revisited a whole lot. And I, I think I'm going to after this one. I, I was actually, we, you know, Riker, we make fun of. But I've actually softened on Riker in my old age, as it were. I think um, he's kind of another Keystone character that the show doesn't quite work without. And maybe, again, that's less Riker and it's more Jonathan Frakes, who also notably steps in as a director. And I think that change behind, um, I don't know about on that episode, but he and Patrick Stewart, a couple of actors actually, all end up directing episodes. And I think it's worth noting, too, as the series goes on, that may also be responsible for some of the quality that they start to retain. I think... Um, you know, as with Leonard Nimoy taking over directorial duties on Star Trek three and four, sometimes the actors uh, know best how to capture the characters. Wow, guys, uh, what a three round segment of uh, nominations. I, I want to go through them again real quick uh, for the folks at home. Dan nominates through rounds one through three. Dan nominates Descent Part Two, Samaritan Snare and The Chase. Josh with Hide and Q. Menage a Troy and Frame of Mind, Jordan with Rascals, Disaster and the Outrageous Akona, and Gabe with The Naked Now, Conundrum and The Royale. Um, I don't know how in the heck I'm supposed to be expected to award two points after, after such wonderful performances. Um, but I think the man who, with one subtle move, uh, bested us all at this particular game of Stratagema uh, is Josh. And he's going to get two points for remembering exactly how the crew got away in Descent Part 2 with a phased Cadian pulse. That is the type of dorkery that wins points here on Dorkfest, the podcast. Strictly speaking, I didn't win that point. I busted it up. And it only continues. Fantastic. We are going to go on to our third and final question. These are the inductions. Again, each dork is going to induct one episode each into the Dorkfest Bad Star Trek The Next Generation Hall of Fame and cannot induct an episode they themselves nominated. So uh, we will again start off with Dan. What we'll do here is we'll make our induction, we'll make our selection, 
We'll say our little piece about it and we'll move on to the next one. And by the end of this, we will have assembled uh, the link to send you all to purchase the Bad Episode Hall of Fame box set uh, available never through a video service that doesn't exist because physical media is dead. It'll be on Quibi. Oh, wait. (laughs) Somebody gets CBS All Access on the phone. They'll want this for sure. All right. Here we go into the inductions. Dan, you, sir, get to start us off. What is your inducted episode for the Hall of Fame of bad Star Trek Next Generation episodes? Well, this is a pretty easy one for me because I'm going to go with the Jordan selection that is one that I had actually outlined as a potential nomination for myself, and it is the episode Rascals. Josh made the wonderful point that Star Trek is, at its worst, okay when it's being silly, and that's exactly what Rascals is. It's a silly episode the Ferengi commandeer Klingon ships and then take over the Enterprise. And despite all that, all it takes is a couple of kids to be able to take the ship right back. That whiny Picard, I want to see my father now, 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 now. I mean, it's just perfectly annoying. And I finally did remember where that kid is from because he wasn't in disaster, but he is Picard's nephew in family. So very nice casting there to be able to tie in the family bloodline. So uh, it's a silly episode. It's not terribly good. If on a rainy Sunday afternoon, Rascals were to be on TV, you'd sit and watch it. I know you would, and I would too. So I'm nominating it. An excellent selection. Although, honestly, uh, I think I've been in the situation where I've been excited to see the next generation come on TV and then disappointed to see it was Rascals. So while I I think it's a great induction for the merits of this course, I I may have to dispute you somewhat on the the couch watching point. Well, Gabe, I, I... Doubt you will dispute my nominee, my induction, pardon me, because it's one of your nominations. I am going to induct the Naked Now. The point that you made of this being the second ever episode, and already they are recycling an original series trope, is really, really bad. It's it's lazy storytelling. Um, it, it proves that th- that they kind of knew that they had something with Star Trek, but didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, it puts these characters in ridiculous situations that are, as the point has been made, that are made less ridiculous by the fact that we don't know any of these people. We don't know that it's ridiculous that the the android data is anatomically correct. We're two episodes in, right? Okay, so, so it's... Uh, it's an anatomically correct android. Maybe this is something we can expect. We don't know that that's something out of the ordinary. We don't know all the background between Beverly Crusher and Jean-Luc Picard and why that interaction is full of tension. Rewatching it now, Wesley coming and saving the day feels random because his character didn't get taken to all the places that maybe Gene Roddenberry thought he was going to go. But as we've been saying, it is fun, and it's one of these early episodes that is watchable because of these ridiculous situations, um, but is full of flaws, and that's why I will induct the Naked Now into the bad Star Trek The Next Generation episode Hall of Fame. Uh, my induction will also be one that is um, eminently watchable, and that's primarily because 
you never don't watch the second part of a two-parter. So my induction will be Descent Part 2. Um, and it's going to be for several reasons that have already been mentioned, but a couple other things that I want to bring up as well. You know, to go back to something we mentioned now a couple of times, this is a great example of an episode that just does not meet the potential that was put out in front of it. Both the potential that was set out from the first part of this episode but also the potential that had been built up throughout the series at this point. It's an episode that really just should have been better and wasn't. Um, And connected to that too, we didn't really talk about the fact that in terms of Star Trek, next, the next generation is the series that really pioneered the two-part episode. You have so many great two-part episodes, whether it's Best of Both Worlds, Time Zero, Unification. You have great two-part episodes. Chain of Game. You can go on and on and on with great two-part episodes. And this being one that doesn't do that, I think, is another knock against it. And then last but not least, the data is, for my money, one of the best things about Star Trek The Next Generation. And the fact that he is one of the worst things about this episode, I think just makes it that much worse. So my induction to the bad Star Trek The Next Generation Hall of Fame, Descent, part two. Well, let me uh, roll this baby into space, Doc. Let's switch to sublight engines. And uh, the final induction, uh, I will induct Hyde and Q, Josh's first round pick. Uh, Because to me, and I thought hard about the chase. Uh, I'll be honest, Dan. I thought about that one. Obviously, you know, I agreed with it. I put it in there too. So maybe that felt a little bit like getting my way. But um, I think Hide and Q is an honest to goodness better choice. It's an early, early episode. Q is not quite set in stone yet, but it, uh, it does retain that fun that we've been talking about. You know, you know, there's that spark of Trek still there. Um, and as much as we've been somewhat surprisingly sort of lauding Riker tonight, um, says the guy who said not long ago that he thought Riker got a bad rap. Um, but Riker with his powers is supremely annoying and even more so without the beard. So all these things counting against it in its favor, Hayden Q will be our final induction, leaving us with a final master list of the following four episodes. Dan inducts Rascals from season six, one of Jordan's nominations. Josh inducts The Naked Now from season one, one of my nominations. Jordan inducts The Descent Part Two, or just Descent Part Two, excuse me, from season seven, Dan's nomination. And I induct Hide and Q from season one, Josh's nomination. We're all just shaking each other's hands over here. And I got to say, at the end of the day, I'm pretty comfortable with this list. It was all our first nominations. Interesting. Wow, yeah. you're right. You you're so right. How about that? So we clearly, we could have just stopped right after that. <laughs> so we basically kept, kept the listeners on for a completely useless 45 minutes to an hour afterwards. The big question, though, is... If we do get CBS or Paramount or whoever owns this stuff now to release this box set over or under 0.5 units sold of this quartet of Next Generation episodes. Slightly over. Not by much. Definitely over. One's already on pre-order to three Marlin. Yeah, it would at least get ordered as a gag gift. My thoughts exactly. And you know what? We probably should have seen this coming. We already alluded to, you know, the the entity, the weird anomaly in, in the captain's quarters in the ready room in the first 15 minutes of the episode that they don't remember until the last 45. So clearly, you know, the audience should have known that our first round, that was going to be it. And yet, look at the four episodes that we've inducted. And I suspect we could list 30 to 40 it easily 
right off the top of our heads that are way worse than any of those, right? So that's kind of exactly what we were hoping for. 30 or 40 might be pushing it, but yeah, I think so. 30 or 40 that are better than these, I think it's also, that's maybe easier to swing. But I think you're right. We can definitely, without breaking a sweat, list some ones that are where I think we've we've accomplished our mission, boys. To the finest crew in all of Starfleet. Ales for everyone. Holy moly, dorks. I, I mean, what is there to say at the end of, of this magnificent work you've all put in? I guess in keeping with the best diagnostic traditions of Star Trek The Next Generation, I can only say this has been some kind of dork fest. Just uh, the alpha of the species here. Tremendous work from all. And uh, of course, I have to assign some points. So I believe where we are is I've got three points left to assign. And I'm going to distribute those as such that everybody has two points. I can do that. Um, and this is just really in recognition of the tremendous work everybody put in and, and the points made and arguments made and, and accepted. And you can't argue with this list, uh, but what you also can't argue with is because there are no ties in Dorkfest and we all seem to have, uh, the winner here is CBS for not only having uh, all of Star Trek uh, online right now, although so is Netflix for the time being, but for the way they're pushing aggressive new Star Trek, especially on television, we may not know what the movies, what shape the movies are going to take here for a little while, but the winner is CBS for having Star Trek and trying to keep it going. Uh, and the winner is, of course, also all of us, because Star Trek is awesome. Thanks for joining us today as we now close out another episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for your support and for your, your ears loaned for a time. And uh, again, please rate, review, subscribe on wherever you find your podcasts. And until next time. Uh, this is the USS Enterprise signing off. It is exactly as they left it, number one. In the bottle. The ship in the bottle. Oh, good Lord. Didn't anybody here build ships in bottles when they were boys? I did not play with toys. I was never a boy. I did, sir. Thank you, Mr. O'Brien. I did. I really did. Ships in bottles. Great fun. <laughs>